so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Some of the most difficult questions currently facing the American church involve how to deal with racial tension. Colin Hansen, Christina Edmondson, Justin Gibney, Juan Sanchez, and Benjamin Watson face some of those questions head-on in a panel discussion at our MLK 50 conference. We pray that open discussion of these hard issues leaves you feeling better equipped to promote unity and peace. As you can see, we're going to be talking about the current state of racial tension in America today. We're going to see if we can't continue this conference's theme of directly addressing some of the hardest issues. I'm joined by just some incredible people who have uh, many insightful things to, to discuss and to share with you in the next 30 minutes. Um, to my immediate right here, you have Dr. Christina Edmondson. <laughs> She is the Dean for Intercultural Student Development at Calvin College. Uh, To her right, we have Justin Gibney. He is the co-founder and president of the AND Campaign. His right, we have Juan Sanchez. He is the senior pastor of High Point Baptist Church in Austin, Texas, and a council member with the Gospel Coalition. And then finally, we have Benjamin Watson, an NFL player for the Baltimore Ravens, author of Under Our Skin and some other titles. Welcome, Benjamin. My name is Colin Hansen. I serve as the editorial director for the Gospel Coalition. We're so glad that you're here. Grateful for how you're interacting. Great for all all the people who are watching as well. Justin, we're going to start off with you on this question. So it seems like a lot of white Americans at least, think of race relations as much better today, at least certainly compared to 50 years ago, maybe even in some extent no longer even a problem that we should be talking about at all if we wouldn't at least keep bringing it up. A lot of us face that uh, question of it's not a problem except for you. You keep bringing it up. Uh, you know, slavery has been abolished for 150 years, racial segregation for more than 50 years. So how do you account for ongoing racial tension in America today? Well, the first thing I think we have to do is put that in the proper perspective. Um, Any way you look at it, uh, black people have been enslaved in this country longer than we've been free. So that's one thing we do have to understand. Uh, And so you can say, and then the thing, you have to understand the nature of slavery. The nature of slavery wasn't just about physical bondage. It was really about a psychological warfare. And that psychological warfare does not go away in a generation or two. So we can say when did, we can talk about when slavery ended, but let's also talk about when redlining ended. Uh, let's talk about when housing discrimination ended. Let's talk about when, when educational disparities ended or when they will end. These, you know, that kind of comment shows just a lack of understanding about systemic racism. 
uh, in that if you have these laws on the books, just because a bias is taken out of the law doesn't mean everything is automatically fixed. Uh, everything doesn't go back. You still have certain mentalities. You still have certain leaders and things that happen under the table that we don't see that still make this a very real issue. So at the end of the day, the problem is not that we're not ta- that we're talking about it. The problem is that we're not really addressing it. Uh, Dr. Edmondson, in, in your work, how do you respond to that question? It's not a problem today, or at least it's so much better. And if you would just stop talking and stop going back to 50 years ago or hosting conferences like this, then maybe we would actually make some progress. Sure. I, I would question if that's the attitude that we have towards all sin. Um, I, I just don't see any biblical precedent that time heals sin and that not repenting of it is not the solution that Christ himself has given us. And so I would, I would ask that person, why is this such a golden calf to you that you will not apply the methodology of Christ to it? Then we could talk more about it. <laughs> well, let's talk more about it. Um, what are some moments that stand out to you as pivotal in pushing America forward and backward in the last 50 years in particular, but then also bring us into the last five years in, yeah. um, on both of those horizons? Okay, I will do my best. <laughs> so, so I'm not a historian by trade, so my friends who are true historians, just bear with me. Um, I think that there are cultural moments that serve as snapshots, that serve as reminders. They're almost like, you think about the narrative of Jonah um, and, and God came to Jonah again. We have many moments personally and socially where God comes to us again through particular events. So um, we can look at an incident that just happened in Memphis. God has come to us again um, because God is a God who is gracious. Um, and so when these things happen, they're an opportunity to repent. But I, I ultimately think that it's the moments that we don't pay a lot of attention to that sometimes push us the furthest back. And Hmm. I can think of uh, the 1987 Supreme Court ruling that racial bias is inevitable in the sentencing of African-Americans to the death penalty. And when I think about people who state to have such a deep pro-life conviction, but to let that slide, um, and to say that any other response would be too severe of a justice, well, the people who have been impacted by a severe grace we pursue a severe justice for our neighbor. So, um, so that would be a historical event that comes to mind, um, not being a historian. But a more recent event, if you talk about the last five years, I don't think we can have this conversation without talking about the last presidential election. And there are significant consequences. And for those of us who weeped as a result of it, we didn't weep because we're big fans of the Democrats. We wept because we knew the witness of the church not just the national, but the global witness of the church was at stake. And so there were consequences to that. Uh, Benjamin, let me ask you, uh, we've seen African-American athletes in particular become more outspoken, including on racial issues in the last number, number of years. Um, how can you see public figures wield their influence for justice and even for, for unity in the church? Definitely, definitely. Well, this is nothing new in the area of sports. I mean, obviously, throughout the history of sport, um, there have been athletes that have stood up during their time, their specific time, for a certain um, causes of justice. And so recently, obviously, with the election, with 
um, the, the awareness of the criminal justice system, the injustices when it comes to sentencing for the same crimes, uh, when it comes to police brutality or at least harsh treatment by police. You've seen athletes um, stand up. And the encouraging thing is not only black athletes have stood up, there have been white athletes that have come alongside of them um, and stand up. But, but, but the reason why this happens, I think, though, is because in these locker rooms, in our locker rooms, we have a common respect for each other's humanity. We know each other's experiences. We understand that that guy is a human being that I can come together with for a common cause. I know his family. I trust him. I care about him. And when you get outside of the locker room, a lot of times you don't have that. You don't have people that aren't like you that you really know and care about. So it's hard for you to come and stand beside them, even though you say you stand for justice, because it doesn't affect you directly. And so as athletes, I, I applaud the guys in whatever form they decide to, to protest. But the next step, obviously, I think is advocacy and education. So what we've seen a lot uh, in our locker rooms is we put together different listen and learn tours. We've put together bail hearings. We have guys that are going to Capitol Hill, guys that are learning and advocating for certain legislation to correct many of these injustices that, you know, we're, we're learning about them as we go along. We don't want to simply be guys who stand up and make noise but our feet don't move towards making action. And so I'm encouraged because of what I've seen from the guys in my, in my locker rooms. Is there a difference between the different sports? It certainly seems like the NBA is a lot more woke than the NFL. Yeah, a lot more woke. Uh, I, I will say that, you know, I wish I was a baller. I do. I wish I, you know, I, wish I was. Um, I wasn't tall enough. But um, I will say that in the NBA, at least, there's more visibility. You've got less guys on the team. The NBA has seemed to really, um, their culture leans more towards allowing guys to express themselves in that way and to advocate and be open with it. Um, there are a number of different factors for that. Um, football has kind of lagged behind when it comes to that um, for different reasons, but, um, but, but there are plenty of strong pillars in football that are doing just that what the NBA is doing. And, and, and it, look, it looks differently. You know, the one thing we understand about protests and about um, advocating is that it doesn't have to all look the same. Uh, we all can do it in our own way. For some of us, it is speaking. It is coming to conferences like this and talking about it. For others, it is using their abilities to write and to, and to, to write books. For others, it may be teaching. For others, it may be becoming part of the political system. Um, there are different ways. We are one body but many parts, and we all use our talents for that. Amen. Uh, Juan, let's, look, let's, talk to the, let's talk about the church here. Probably most discouraging for me is that historically and today, the church has not always worked toward um, racial justice and unity. And sometimes the church has even lagged way behind the government um, and even sports. How do we convey to churches that we cannot fulfill the Great Commission as effectively if we do not make progress on this front? Yeah. First of all, I would say it's not that the church is lagged behind. I would say in some churches, it's in some cases, the church has fought against yeah, absolutely. racial unity. Right. My first experience of overt racism was in a church. As a young music student, I brought a friend of mine to play the piano and sing at the church. And, and I was clueless, and the pastor took me aside after the service, put his arm around me, and he said, Juan, I appreciate what you're trying to do, but, but please don't do that again. And I thought, what, what did I do? And I didn't realize this was an all-white church, and my friend was black. And that's what he was referring to. And so I experienced that again and again and again you know, in, a, in, a, in another church. Uh, that was in, Florida, in rural Florida, in central Georgia, I experienced. You know, someone gave me a blank check to do something for the youth in the community. We put up basketball goals, and all of a sudden we had 
you know, dozens and dozens of kids back there. And one of the deacons came up to me and he said, Juan, have you thought about that? Some of these black kids are going to start coming to church. And I thought, isn't that the point? <laughs> and, um, and so that, that was, those were my experiences in the church. And you know, what we have to realize is unbelieving people are lost, but they're not stupid. You know, just like Dr. Edmondson said, the unbelieving world looks at the church and if the church tolerates adultery, they're going to see that. If the church tolerates, you know, if the church is hypocritical, they're going to see that. If, if the pastor is, is asking the church to buy him a helicopter so he can go from place to place, they're going to look at the world and they're going to, the, the, the world's going to look at the church and say, what's wrong with that? And it's the same with racism. And so these things, first of all, must be on our hearts as pastors. The, there has to be a convictional courage. And, and what did it for me was coming to the understanding of Ephesians. You know, uh, Paul is clear. God's eternal plan is to exalt Jesus Christ as King and Lord over all things and to bring all things, to unite all things in him. And one of the things that God is uniting in Christ is a fractured and divided humanity. So that when Paul says it was his stewardship to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of this Jewish Messiah, that by faith in Christ, the non-Jews take part in the inheritance of the Jewish Messiah, and that as he's preaching, that he's bringing to light the eternal plan of God to exalt Jesus Christ as Lord and King, and that it is through the church that God displays his manifold wisdom. That um, if we're not doing that, we're participating contrary to the eternal plan of God to unite Christ as King and Lord, who is uniting a fractured humanity. And so, first of all, it must be on our hearts. It must be a convictional thing. It must be a convictional, courageous thing. And then we must then not just think about it and be convicted, but then we must intentionally teach that, practice that, and implement that. Uh, Justin, let's continue on that theme with the church. And talk about, we, we know that we're in an incredibly polarized political environment. Um, certainly a lot of that is manifest in the church as well. So I'm wondering, how can the church be a force for good in the midst of this escalating tension and not merely another mobilizing agent on both wings to foster more fear and loathing? You know, how are we working toward faith and love in the church instead of just continuing what we see on talk radio and cable news? That's a good question. I think it's two things. So the first thing is, I truly believe that the elephant, this is the elephant in the room. I think this is important. I don't believe that white evangelicals, uh, leaders, civic leaders, and also politicians have ever truly divested themselves from the Southern strategy. Meaning, I think they still believe they need the racist support funding, votes to win, right? And so as long as they feel they need that to win, it's going to be hard to come together because they're still receiving the benefits of the people they kind of say we don't want to be around, but we're still receiving their benefits. And so if, if you truly want to see change, you have to unequivocally reject that Southern strategy. You can no longer caucus with racists and like, act like it's okay. Because if you don't cut that off, and as long as you continue to accept those benefits, then you're complicit. The other thing I would say is that we have to get rid of this, uh, I call the pious bystander stance when it comes to advocacy, where we say, on certain issues, just be pious and let things work themselves out. I think there's two problems with that. Number one is, 
it's not necessarily good theology, right? Um, number two is people only say that about the things that they don't that don't directly affect them. It's easy to tell the person across the tr- uh, tracks, just be pious, let the things work them out. People only say that with issues that they don't prioritize. But for instance, on the right, and I think they're right to do this, they don't say that about abortion, right? right? Nor should they, but they don't say that. And just to make it personal, if your child had fallen out of a tree and their leg is broken on the ground, you're not going to look them in the eye and say, just be pious and let things work themselves out. That'd be a d- ridiculous response. In fact, you might go to jail for that type of neglect. And until we see treating our neighbors and our brothers and sisters who look differently than us at the same way we see our child when they're on the ground uh, with a broken leg, there's not going to be a whole lot of reconciliation until we get there. And I think those are two of the important points that we need to work on. Justin, let me, let me follow up. Uh, it, it may be possible that a lot of people here don't know what the Southern strategy is. I mean, I think you explained some of how that works out with needing certain kinds of racist, either implicit or explicit votes on the Republican side. But can you take us into some of that history? There may be people here who don't know why so many, such high percentages of African-Americans vote Democratic, as an example. So you had guys like Lee Atwater and others who basically said at one point the Republican Party was going to allow in these folks who used to be kind of the Dixocrats, folks who were kind of outcasted in other parts. They said, you know what? It actually benefits us to let these guys in. And so what has happened is, while people don't necessarily use the N-word publicly, there's still a benefit to that. And so as long as you're dependent on those votes and that power, and until the day that you say, I don't want your votes, I don't want your money or anything like that, there's always going to be a leash on what you can do. You might say something and you might step out there, then they're going to pull you back. Because with, on, with one hand, you're saying, I want to reach out, I want to do something different, I'm a compassionate conservative. With the other hand, you're being pulled by this, this person that's giving you money and, and telling you to do certain things, you'll never take the steps that'll need to be taken towards racial reconciliation until you completely cut that off. And it has to be a clean cut that is not, uh, that, that's very clear. So perhaps Charlottesville would be an example. Could you explain how that played out in terms of, if you're looking at this from the lens of that Southern strategy, explain the significance of what happened in Charlottesville. So the significance of what happened, so you look at Charlottesville and you have some people who kind of spoke out. You had the president who said there were a lot of bad people there. Or there were people who said, generally, this was bad. We don't like it. But how many people said this is completely unacceptable? And some people did. This is completely unacceptable. We're not going to deal with it. And I'm calling this out. I don't want any benefit from this partnership. Until we have that, and I think uh, Charlottesville got us a ways towards there. But until we have that, you're not going to see the racial reconciliation because there's still that attachment to something that doesn't fit within the gospel. Uh, Benjamin, let, let's, let's talk about uh, continuing on these themes here. You have fought against abortion as well as racism. You recognize structural inequities, and you also advocate for stronger families and for better fathers in particular. How do you hold together what so many others separate across political and racial lines? Well, I, I just heard it said by a friend of mine, I told him I was going to steal this. He said that as a believer, he's not dedicated to be an elephant or, or a donkey because his Lord is a lamb. And so for me, for me, the issues that are important to God, the issues that I see in Scripture, those are the things I want to stand for. It doesn't matter what the red and the blue say. It matters what Jesus says. It matters what Scripture says. One of my favorite verses in Jeremiah, it says, Jeremiah chapter 9, and it talks about this Jeremiah speaking, and he says, let not the wise man uh, boast of his wisdom. Let not the rich man boast of his riches or the strong man boast of his strength. So he's talking about humility there. 
Then he says, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. Kindness, justice, and righteousness is what God delights in. So those are the things that I want to be a part of. Those are the things I want to lead my family as their father into. And I want my kids, my five kids to understand that this is what's important. So whether it's uh, the life of a a young child that is in the womb or whether it's the life of a young boy or girl that has no opportunity because of where they were born and the situation they were born in, whether it's the life of someone who has been charged with a crime that they did not commit and they are sitting there under bail reform, they don't have the money to pay bail, so they have to sit there in jail and they end up committing suicide like our young brother in New York advocate for him. I want to stand for all of these things, whether it's the sex, person who's sex trafficked. As believers, we can't be so tied to, as you talked about the votes, to really moving from one side of the aisle to the other and not being, look, we're going to stand for the things that are right. So, so it's an easy decision for me. Um, it may come across to some people like, oh, how can you do both? And I say, you know what, God is a God of both and, and if something is right, it's right. It doesn't matter what the vote says. Amen. Juan, perhaps you could address that from the perspective of the local church as well. It strikes me that some people will complain, don't get into politics, but that seems to only apply to the political things that they disagree with there. Um, how do you think about that as a pastor to help? I, it almost, I almost get a sense as well that we don't have a problem of too, little, uh, too much politics. We have too little. We're not discipling. The world is doing the discipleship through cable news and through talk radio discipleship, and we can't compete with it with 30-minute sermons and hour-long Sunday school classes compared to four hours, six hours, eight hours a day of this stuff. So help us to understand a vision for how we can do this, especially as church leaders, to disciple in righteousness and justice. Yeah. First of all, let me, let me put a plug for Jonathan Lehman's new book. It just That's came out. That's a great one. You know, uh, yeah. why the how nations, the nations, how rage. The nations yeah. rage, which is, is kind of written to the white evangelical to kind of help them understand all the political influences that are really subconscious. You know, they're kind of pre-understandings in their psyche. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but first of all, again, we have, to, we have to paint a picture of who we are. And the Bible is clear. We are strangers and aliens on this earth. We are a display people. We are called to to display the kingdom of God on this earth. That's what it means to image God, is image bearers. You know, we talked about dignity. Dignity is an implication that we are God's image bearers. But as image bearers, we are royal sons and daughters. All of us are kings and queens called to represent God's government on this earth. And as we represent God's government and we're telling the world how we live as a church, who our God is, what he is like, what it is like to live under his rule and how God's people live together in love as a church. And so that has to be our primary focus. You know, the the discipleship that Dr. Perkins talked about with one another living life together. For us, it's a a personal commitment. Uh, We have a multi-ethnic, multicultural congregation to learn learn from one another. And and we clearly um, talk about the politics of heaven and how we're to display the politics of heaven on this earth and continually talk about the, the transient nature of the politics of this earth, how they're, they're here, you can win an election, but it's gone in four, eight, ten years, and it really, th- those things are eternal, so we must build the foundation of the church on Jesus Christ, on eternal materials, 
because those churches that are building on worldly political ideologies, it's going to be wood, hay, and stubble. And those pastors, you know, may be saved, but they're going to smell like smoke. You know, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. They'll be saved, though, as through fire. And so we have to be careful how we're building the the church on the foundation of Jesus Christ alone. Amen. Thanks, Juan. Uh, Dr. Edmondson, I've got, uh, maybe you can help counsel us with a couple things as we we head out here in the last uh, few minutes. Um, It seems as if this racial tension in America is amplified by some of these cultural flashpoints that we're talking about. Certainly, we can go back in the recent years to Ferguson, to Charlottesville, to the, the, the NFL protests to certainly the presidential election. Um, How can we be best equipped to serve our communities in response during these crises? How can we keep these sudden setbacks? How can we understand them in proper context, continue to get up that next day and continue that fight? Um, I mean, it just, the blows keep coming and we never know when the next one's going to hit us. I mean, these things are grievous. And also at the same time, it is a good thing when the implicit becomes explicit. So the touch points that we're referring to are just examples of the implicit becoming explicit. And so um, I know for many people who have a strong sense of the data and the lived experience of racial injustice, when these touch points happen, we grieve, but we also say, see, we're not crazy. And we've said it for a really, really long time. And our ancestors said it before. And so I think there's an opportunity in conflict. There's a transformational opportunity if we hear, like like Jonah heard God say again, if we hear God say to us, come to us again through these experiences. And so the question becomes, will we ignore, will we downplay, will we dismiss, will we function as we did in the garden, right? To deny, to blame, to ignore, to hide because we do that systemically and personally when it comes to sin? Or will we repent? Will we believe in the grace that God, that Christ has secured for us on the cross? We just celebrated Easter. If we believe that the cross has given us grace, then we repent. And we repent with our legs, our feet, and our pockets. And we repent in a way that's reparative, beyond rhetoric, but says, what would it look like if things had been right? Oh, for quite some time. What would this mean for the school system? What would this mean for relationships between men and women? What would this mean for um, job opportunities and health disparities and maternal uh, mortality rates? What would it mean? And then we put our money to it and we make repair. I've uh, been blessed to watch your career and your writing for a number of years now. And I've seen how you write and speak for Justice and Mercy even amid fervent opposition and division, how could we use social media in particular and those platforms that, any of, that are available to any of us here for what we've been talking about here, for faith and love, for justice and mercy, and not more fear and loathing and an ungodly kind of division? Yeah. So the, so the scripture is what binds our conscience. And that's a beautiful thing because it can set you free. And it can set you free to be able to speak truth and love. And we do that in very broken ways, so we need to repent when we do that. But it does give us freedom to speak out. And when I think about maybe the teaspoon of opposition that I've been given for simple words online, that is nothing compared to the death threats, 
compared to the assassination of MLK. That is nothing. And the Lord allows us right now to sit in a privileged place to say things that should be obvious, like racism is wrong. Let's repent and repair. So that is an honor and a privilege to say. And bloggers and trollers and Russian bots, um, <laughs> they're not as scary as the word of God is on my conscience. Yeah, amen. 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 Benjamin, I'll give you this uh, last question. What's the most encouraging sign you see in America today when it comes to race relations and how do we get more of that progress? Well, for me, I just traveled over here through a tornado from Huntsville, uh, <laughs> Alabama last night. I literally almost thought I was going to die while driving down the street. But I was there speaking, and I was in Rome before that, and have been a couple other places, and there is a stirring. And you mentioned it when the implicit becomes explicit. What we've seen over the last several months, several years, is uh, kind of an, a, an uncloaking of much of what was underneath. And so conflict is not necessarily bad. Conflict is actually good. How we approach the conflict is what's most important. And so what I've seen is a large number of people in our churches, black and white, wanting to get this thing right. And this is our time. This is how it looks for us. Um, it looked a certain way years ago and another way years ago, but, but I've seen people, young people, who want to get this thing right and are broken. The Bible talks so much about brokenness. We cannot have progress unless we are first broken. Until God breaks our spirit, makes us mourn for those who don't have, makes us mourn for our sin when it comes to this issue, leads us to repentance and leads us to forgiveness, unless we have that brokenness, we're not going to get anywhere, especially in this country, which is so built on individualism. Hmm. America is an individualistic country. When we look at what we have and our status and our jobs, our, our, the letters behind our name, what we've done, we always in America like to say, I did this because I worked hard, because I did this, I earned this. The gospel says, no, you didn't earn anything. I gave it to you by the blood of my son. And so if we don't have brokenness and we allow, and we allow the Americanism and the patriotism to go into the Christian realm, into our churches, and we subconsciously start to think that, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I kind of earned some of this salvation. I can never be broken enough to see my, my wrong when it comes to this issue. I will never repent when it comes to this issue because I don't think I've done wrong because I think I'm a pretty good guy and I like you. You're okay with me, but I won't see the broad spectrum when it comes to systemic injustice that has happened on and on and on and the ramifications of that. I won't be aware of it. And so what I've seen is people are, are genuinely broken. And my prayer for all of us, myself included, is that I, I stay in that state and that God through his spirit, teaches me how to engage. Because when you're broken, that's when God can lead you to the next step. He can spur you on with what to read, how to educate yourself, what relationships to have, how to open your eyes to certain things, and how to get involved. So I'm ultimately encouraged because the gospel gives us hope and because of the brokenness I've seen across the country when it comes to this, because much of what has been implicit has become explicit. Well, please join me in thanking our panelists. Thanks for tuning in to the ERLC podcast. Visit us online at ERLC.com or subscribe through iTunes or Google Podcast. And leave us a review if you're enjoying the show. Join us next week as a panel of Christian leaders discuss juggling ministry with family life.